Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm, and on today's show, we do a deep dive into the wellspring of legal and compliance issues surrounding the topic of ESG, including an analysis of all the recent rulemaking in this space and what the practical application of these rules could mean for firms and their respective compliance programs. In our headline section, we examine the SEC examination priorities for 2023. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of What's on My Mind, where an old subway incident can teach us about seeing the extraordinary in the everyday and showing a little appreciation for our compliance officer family. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, on February 7th of this year, the SEC's Division of Examinations published its 2023 examination priorities regarding the areas that it believes present the most potential risks to investors and the integrity of the U.S. capital markets. In keeping with many of the recent trends, the Commission focused on advisors' fiduciary duty, cybersecurity, ESG, private funds, and many others. But before we get into the details there, let's talk about a few quick stats we also saw in the release. In fiscal year 2022, the SEC examined approximately 15% of the registered investment advisor population. This was achieved despite continued growth in the registered population to more than 15,000 investment advisors, overseeing more than $125 trillion in assets under management. Going forward, as the industry continues to grow and change, the SEC believes that increased examinations can only be achieved with significant investments in human capital and technology resources, as noted in their fiscal year 2021 priorities. With respect to broker-dealers, the Division of Exams completed over 360 examinations, and together with FINRA, the SEC and uh, FINRA together nearly uh, examined nearly half of the approximately 3,500 registered broker-dealers in fiscal year 2022. So, to the specific areas for investment advisors, at the top of the list, we'll talk about the marketing rule, specifically noting that the marketing rule is such a significant change to a core examination review area for advisors. The examination staff will, among other things, assess whether advisors have, one, adopted and implemented reasonably designed written policies and procedures, and two, complied with the substantive requirements of the new rule, including the requirement to have a reasonable basis for believing that an advisor will be able to substantiate material statements of facts and requirements of performance advertising, testimonials and endorsements, and third-party ratings. On the private fund side of the house, examinations will focus on core areas including conflicts of interest, calculation and allocation of fees and expenses, advertising, like we just mentioned the marketing rule, use of alternative data, and custody rule compliance, which of course comes on the heels of now a new safeguarding rule proposal. But back to the private funds. In addition, uh, examiners will focus on private funds with specific risk characteristics, such as being highly leveraged, side-by-side management with business development companies, the use of affiliated companies and advisory personnel to provide services to fund clients and underlying portfolio companies, hard-to-value investments, such as crypto and potentially real estate-connected investments, SPACs, again, and again, the involvement in advisor-led restructurings, including 
stapled secondary transactions and continuation funds. On the fiduciary front, again, the SEC will always continue examining for compliance with the standards of conduct applicable to both BDs and RIAs, but in particular, the obligation to act in the retail investor's best interests and not to place the firm's or its financial professional's interests ahead of the investor's interests. Specifically in this area, examiners are going to be looking at investment advice and recommendations, material conflicts, disclosures, heads clauses in client agreements that supposedly purport to inappropriately waive or limit an advisor's fiduciary duty, and uh, form CRS will, of course, be continued, will continue to be prioritized and incorporated into, quote, core examinations. Other focus areas for the Division of Exams include things like ESG investing, where examiners will make sure that funds are operating in a manner consistent with disclosures. In addition, examiners will assess whether ESG products are being appropriately labeled and whether recommendations of such products for retail investors are made in the investor's best interest. On the information security and operational resiliency front, a topic that we've talked a lot about this show over the past six months, cybersecurity continues continues to be a focus area for the Division of Exams, and in particular, examiners are going to be assessing whether, quote, policies and procedures are reasonably designed to safeguard customer records and information, both information residing in registrant systems and stored through a third-party provider, as well as whether the location of such records has been properly disclosed to the SEC where required. Exams will also look at things like remote working arrangements, the use of third-party uh, vendors, and even whether there's any operational resiliency planning for systemically significant registrants, including climate-related risks. On the crypto front, examiners will assess whether advisors involved with crypto or crypto-related assets fulfill their fiduciary duty to clients and, quote, routinely review, update, and enhance their compliance disclosure and risk management practices. And finally, on the mutual fund front, examiners are going to be focusing on the fiduciary ob obligations of advisors to mutual funds, particularly with respect to the receipt of compensation. They're also going to be looking at the board's processes for assessing and improving advisory and other fund-related fees. And finally, they'll be really digging into the effectiveness of funds, derivatives, and liquidity risk management programs. Lastly, but certainly not least, uh, the core examination areas for uh, never-been-examined advisors will, of course, be in play. And I think firms will, should also be wary of making sure that they have the proper policies and procedures in place for retaining and monitoring electronic communications. Certainly, headlines that we've talked about here with some of those enforcement cases at the end of the third quarter last year, but we're also continuing to hear that these things continue to come up during examinations, and so I think firms would do well to make sure to prepare for those. As we move into the interview section of today's show, we're going to be focusing on a subject matter that seems to be in the headlines pretty much every day now. In fact, I don't think I've seen any morning release of the investment news without at least some article touching on the topic of ESG. And we're going to be doing a deep dive on everything from rulemaking to enforcement to what are firms doing now to help themselves prepare a little bit for what likely internal controls and policies and procedures they will want to make sure they have in place uh, in order to comply with all of these new rules and requirements and other things in play. And so with that all in mind, I am incredibly pleased 
to welcome in two fantastic individuals to go through this topic with us. First, I'd like to introduce Sarah Donaldson. She is a Senior Vice President and Head of Active Ownership at Voya Investment Management. Sarah is a member of the investment team and is responsible for Voya's active ownership activities, including overseeing Voya's global proxy voting policies, engaging with issuers, engaging with issuers chairing the proxy committees and reporting out to the ESG Investment Committee and the Voya Mutual Funds Board of Directors. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. And I'm also very pleased uh, to welcome in Adam Aderton. Adam is a partner in the litigation department at Wilkie, Farr and Gallagher. He joined Wilkie in uh, September of last year. Uh, but before Wilkie, Adam spent uh, 14 years at the SEC and uh, was a person who I uh, deeply respected uh, for all of the work that he did during his time at the commission and most recently served as the co-chief of the asset management unit in the SEC. SEC's Division of Enforcement, where, among other things, he was, in fact, a member of the Enforcement's ESG Task Force. So, welcome, Adam, to the show. Thanks so much, Patrick. And as I think you know, I am a longtime listener, so I'm very excited uh, to be joining you today. Well, we are very excited to have you. Uh, thank you. And, and thank you both very much for really being so generous with your time to really dive into this incredibly important topic for so many of the investment market participants. So, I, I think really to kind of maybe set the table just at the at the top here um it would be really helpful i think for many of the folks in our audience if we did a uh, a bit of a, a look back right in in thinking about you know what has been some of the recent impact of esg on the broader markets and and why why in particular is this topic um such a focus of the sec now and may, maybe you know Maybe Adam, let's let's start with you there. We'd, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it's a great question because it's clear that the SEC has been devoting a lot of resources to ESG uh, across the rulemaking, examination, and enforcement fronts. And I think we can glean a little bit about why the SEC is so interested by looking at the rule proposal that we'll talk about more today uh, on investment advisor ESG disclosure. In that proposal, the SEC cited statistics that as of the date of the proposal, there was something like $17.1 trillion, that's trillion with a T, invested in ESG strategies, which was up from $639 billion in 1995. Wow. The SEC also gave us statistics about the number of funds, saying that there were 1,700 funds, at least ESG funds by 2020, which was up from just 55 in 1995. The proposal noted that I noted a study that found that more than 40% of institutional investors said they considered ESG when making investment decisions. And obviously, uh, you know, fund flows to ESG and sustainable type products have slowed a little bit since that rule release came out. But it's clear that there's been a significant sustained increase in the flow of assets and the, the amount of assets that are being managed by ESG strategies. It's not uncommon for the SEC's interest to follow investor flows and things that investors are saying are important to them based on their investment decisions. So I think those investor flows, coupled with the fact that ESG seems to be a priority across the Biden administration, with a third factor of a perception that the U.S. being slightly behind global markets with respect to regulating ESG, I think all of those factors really came together in 2021, 2022 to move ESG to the top of the SEC's agenda. Yeah, no, that's 
That's really helpful background and context. And I mean, crazy to think about the amount of growth in, in the space and, and the attention to it over time. <clears throat> you know, I know even anecdotally for other firms that, that I've worked with in the last couple of years, even if they don't necessarily have ESG as one of their primary investment directives, oftentimes if they're answering an RFP or thinking about a piece of marketing or other stuff, they, they will have to make essentially like a statement, non-statement about ESG in a lot of contexts because they know that they, in fact, the, uh, the in investor population is so interested in this topic too. Has there been, I mean, you know, as far as impact to advisors and suppliers, I guess that last example I just mentioned, even for advisors that may not be focused on ESG, how they might be impacted, but for those advisors that and suppliers that are you know pretty active in the space, been a pretty significant impact there as well. I would imagine. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I mean I think this is a, an across the board issue for uh, for advisors and for data vendors that work with advisors uh, on ESG strategies and the implementation of, of these kinds of strategies. A real ecosystem has been developed over the last probably over a longer period than I've recognized, but I've really come to see it over the last three to five years to service strategies that uh, that implement ESG. And there's, there's just a continuing proliferation of those kinds of service providers. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, that's another great point. And it kind of leads into, you know, some of the, the rulemaking, I think, that has occurred in this space over the last couple of years as this ecosystem kind of continues to develop. I like that phrase that you use too, because that is a really important. And I'm sure we'll talk about a lot of the different kind of constituencies that are involved in some of these different rules. But uh, on May 25th of last year, the SEC proposed two uh, form and rule uh, amendments seeking to enhance and standardize disclosures related to environmental, social, and governance factors considered by funds and advisors, and to also expand the regulation of the naming of funds with an ESG focus. You know, these proposed rules really uh, followed a, a kind of landmark SEC proposal that was announced in March of 2022 that required public companies to disclose extensive kind of climate related information in their SEC filings. And, you know, we'll be looking at some of these different rule proposals and thinking about some of the proxy voting guidance. I know, Sarah, interested to hear your thoughts there and, and form NPX. But I guess specifically, if we look at the, you know, enhanced disclosures by certain investment advisors and investment companies about uh, uh, ESG investment practices. And maybe Adam would, would love to get your thoughts specifically kind of about that rule proposal um, and what did it say? And then maybe we can dive into a little bit from, you know, what, what was the reaction from, from the industry? Well, Patrick, how much time do we have today? Because like, <laughs> most, like most recent SEC rule proposals, this proposal says a lot. It, it clocks in uh, somewhere north of 350 pages, and we could probably talk about it for, for, the, for the, rest of, the rest of the week. Um, but let's break down just sort of at a high level what, what the proposal does. So the proposal seeks to create a disclosure and reporting framework for funds regarding their ESG practices. And the proposal would make amendments to registration and reporting forms used by 40 Act funds in their offerings and periodic reportings, as well as changes to the ADV for both registered advisors and exempt reporting advisors 
to uh, achieve these goals of, of enhanced uh, enhanced disclosure. And while you know a few a few things to think about before we get into the very specifics, while the proposed rules changes are focused on disclosure enhancements, the scope of the re the proposed revisions are, are really quite remarkable, and it's unlike anything else I remember seeing in the level of detail that's required for a particular type of investment strategy. Uh, so what are those requirements? A theme running through the proposal is a distinction between what the SEC is terming an integration fund compared to what the SEC terms an ESG-focused fund. And so an integration fund, according to the SEC, is a fund that considers ESG factors in making its investment decisions, but give those factors no greater weight than non-ESG factors. So an interesting point with this definition is that even if you don't consider yourself an ESG manager, but you've told investors that you consider ESG factors in making investment decisions, perhaps from a financial materiality standpoint, these rules could, could affect you and scope you in to being an integration fund manager, depending on how the final rule is adopted. For funds that will, go ahead, Patrick. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I didn't want to cut you off because I know you, you got a follow up, but that, that is such an important point. And I think you're right. I think a lot of advisors who think, hey, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not showing in my prospectus or in my PPM or whatever that like I'm focused on ESG. So I'm good. Like I'm fine, you know, nothing to worry about here. And, and I do think that that integration point is a great one because it's like, look, if you are in fact using those factors or if there are um, anything describing the fact that, you know, yes, we look at a lot of other things, but we believe generally that, companies with good ESG practices are going to be good companies and it is a factor in our investment analysis. Be careful, <laughs> I guess, is, is, is the thing to, to keep in mind there because it could pull you in, it sounds like. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think an irony is that the rule proposal, one of the concerns it's looking to get at is a greenwashing concern. But now you may well, if the proposal goes forward, is adopted as proposed, you may end up scoping in funds that, that really don't spend a lot of time on ESG processes, making disclosures about ESG and could potentially confuse the issue even more with respect to the greenwashing concern. And, and Patrick, can I jump in on this one for a sec? Tell me one fund manager that does not think of governance. So, you know, is that now all of these funds are going to be an integrated fund? So I find, I find that hard to believe. And then also the disclosure requirement really highlights just maybe E and F is more important because of that having to be disclosed versus are you disclosing all your financial data? So it, it puts more weight on something that maybe isn't that same weight that the investment advisor considers. I think it's a great point. I totally think it's a great point. I mean, it almost feels like if you're a fund manager and you're doing due diligence on an investment, like could we really say that you even completed proper due diligence without looking at the governance of that potential company or investment? Or I mean, like it doesn't feel like you'd really be meeting your mandate as a fiduciary if you just were like, ah, I'm not worried about that. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. So sorry, Adam. I know you. No, 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 not at all. I agree. Those are these are these are great points, and it's really something that a lot of commentary has picked up around. Uh, the definition of an integration fund. The other side of that dichotomy is an ESG-focused fund. And the SEC has said funds for which ESG factors are significant or main consideration in selecting investments would be considered ESG-focused funds. 
to the extent a fund finds itself in this ESG-focused category, they would be required to provide very detailed ESG disclosures, including a standardized ESG strategy uh, overview table in the prospectus that would include an overview of the strategy, a description of how the fund incorporates ESG into its investment decisions, and a discussion of how the fund votes proxies, a subject we'll come back to later, and or engages with companies about ESG issues. And then a subset of the ESG-focused funds uh, are impact funds, which the SEC has, has defined as funds that seek to achieve a particular ESG objective. And these funds would be required to disclose in their annual reports their progress in achieving that objective, both in quantitative and qualitative terms, as well as the key factors that materially affected their ability to achieve those objectives. And so I said when we introduced these rules, the discussion about these rules, that it's much more prescriptive with respect to a particular investment strategy. And I think when we talk about the nature of the disclosures that the rule proposes, you can see how this is this is different than what you might expect with other investment strategies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a great point. I guess uh, a question for you both, you know, Adam in, in you know, with some of the clients that, that, that you work with that are in the space and, and Sarah with some of your contemporaries, you know, in a similar way where, you, you know, what, what was the general reaction from the industry, right? I mean, if you're thinking about these rules in total, and we've already talked a little bit, I think, about what some of those uh, reaction would be from those funds that might ultimately get pulled in as integration funds. But, you know, in, in general, you know, what, what are some of your, uh, what has been some of the industry's broader thoughts there? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to offer some of what I saw, uh, both from, from clients and then also from the really robust comment file. Climate rules at the SEC get a lot of comments, uh, a lot of comment letters from a lot of constituencies. And I would say as a general rule, the industry with respect to this, this proposal recognize that there's a validity in attempting to mitigate the risk of greenwashing and making sure investors understand the investment strategy into which they're investing. That said, many commentators did express concerns about the complex and prescriptive nature of these rules and flagged that some elements of the proposal or Note again, the integration fund uh, could unintentionally increase investor confusion rather than mitigate it, which is the purpose of the disclosure requirement. Right. right. Uh, and I also think what the challenge is that we're, you know, on the impact or the, um, you know, what was the one beyond uh, integration, that requiring disclosure from, you know, a GHG emissions target, whatever, for the, the fund perspective, that's really a challenge to do if you, we haven't asked the issuers to provide that information to us. And we're having to rely on data providers that, you know, their methodology is all going to vary. So, you know, the advisors can attempt and, and they are to do best in terms of measuring and how are they you know, implementing the, the investment strategy, given the resources that they have. But, you know, from an enforcement action, that to me is going to be a real challenge for them to be able to, to demonstrate that if the data is something that they can't control. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And it certainly makes a lot of sense that in both of your responses there, I think there are, uh, there's this element that uh, of confusion and, and trying to figure out exactly how they should properly navigate that, you know, e- either where they don't have the right information, right, Sarah, and, and what they're going to do in order to properly disclose or, you know, report on that. And then in other ways, you know, for, from some of Adam's early remarks, even not exactly knowing 
what we what type of if they're not an ESG where you're an ESG focused fund and even in those instances or an impact fund, there's certainly you're gonna be aware that you know you're gonna have to disclose something, but what what exactly that is. And then for those other folks that may get pulled in as integration funds, I just it feels like there's a lot of confusion there and something that hasn't been fully flushed out in a way that's gonna be meaningful for a lot of the you know, participants that might that might be impacted. Another area that I think certainly uh, received, and, and Adam, you mentioned the robust uh, comment file <laughs> that came back on on some of those uh, rule proposal. The names rule proposal. I think also uh, provided significant opportunity for the industry to provide comment. And um, and I guess maybe I'll kind of ha- uh, would love to hear thoughts from you both here. Maybe, you know, Adam, if you wouldn't mind, maybe give us another rundown of, you know, kind of what does uh, the specific kind of rule proposal say? And then, Sarah, I would love to dig into how the new rule proposal might impact someone who's trying to run an ESG program. But but maybe, Adam, let's start with you. What, what exactly does the names rule proposal say? Yeah, so it's a great question. The good news here is that this one is a much lighter lift, is only 200 pages uh, to digest and to figure out how it's going to apply. And uh, the proposal, as you say, would, would make changes to under Rule 35D1 of the Investment Company Act, which is the names rule. I think it's good to contrast with the current rule because unlike with the ESG rulemaking, here we have a rule that's in place that the industry is com- is complying with now, and, and so we'll, it's, it's good to compare against that current baseline. So currently, the rule requires registered investment company or BDC with a name that suggests a focus in a particular type of investment industry or geographic region. So industry, investment, or geographic region, or that it or that asserts that its distributions are tax exempt to adopt a policy to invest at least 80% of the value of its assets and investments consistent with that name. So the new proposal is a significant expansion of the application of that rule in that it will include, among other things, fund names with ESG or similar terms. So what exactly would the proposal do? It would expand the scope of the fund fund names required to have an 80% investment policy to include names with terms suggesting that the fund focuses in investments that have or whose issuers have particular characteristics, which would include names with terms such as growth or value, which may be a subject for another podcast, or terms that suggest a fund's investment decisions incorporate one or more ESG factors. And it would require funds to maintain compliance with their 80% investment policy at all times, except for limited temporary departures. It would require funds to define in their prospectuses the terms used in its name, including the criteria that the fund uses to select investments that the term describes. It would deem the names of integration funds, again, issues with integration funds, to be materially deceptive or misleading if the name indicates that the fund's investment decisions incorporate one or more ESG factors, but such factors are no more significant than other non-ESG factors in the investment process. So very prescriptive with respect to integration funds. And it would subject funds to additional record-keeping requirements to document their compliance with the names rule. So I just ticked through a list of about five or six things. And as you can hopefully glean, it's, it's a significant expansion of the requirements to comply with the names rule. 
Yeah, no, thank you. That's a really, really good rundown. And it's a perfect segue to bring in Sarah, because as someone who is thinking about their own ESG program and how this type of rule proposal would impact you know, what you would need to do in order to properly comply with that laundry list of stuff that Adam just went through, you know, what, what were, what are some of your initial thoughts and, and um, other, uh, I guess, you know, considerations that you would advise folks who are running their own ESG programs that, you know, they should be considering as a result of the names rule proposal and just some, some kind of broader thoughts there. Sure. Um, and I'm, I'm going to pull the SEC disclosure and say views of mine and not necessarily Boya's, right? This is my view on, on ESG. So, uh, you know, a couple thoughts. It seems that this rule is really focusing on ESG. I mean, you know, how am I defining my value? I mean, that doesn't seem to be much of a focus. So obviously be mindful of your name. You know, if you're going to include sustainable or ESG or anything, you, you better be able to substantiate that, you know, both from documentation and a process perspective. But if you're not using, if you're going to be an integrated fund, right? Let's assume that most of them are, right? And you don't put that term in your prospectus or in the name of the fund, then, you know, you're actually better off. Right than having to be following these onerous uh, requirements, and I think you, you really need to have subject matter experts, you know, help assess whether it's legal or compliance. Really, how are we going to comply with that requirement? And I think one thing that I was really surprised by was the import requirement, and I don't know that much about that that filing, but to identify a portfolio investment that in, if a portfolio investment is included in the fund's 80% basket. If you hold hundreds of names, how do you identify why that particular you know security is in that basket and how it then qualifies to match that name? And you know, if you only hold a couple names, that's fine. And yes, an active manager clearly is going to know why they made that buy decision or that sell decision. But to be able to document that investment reason and tie it back to very specific about that fits into the name or the strategy. And to be able to document that, that seems really onerous if you have hundreds or even thousands of names in your portfolio. So I think that will, will really be a, a challenge. Um, and, and I think from an ESG program, it also it just reinforces what's your definition of ESG, how are you using ESG factors, and then how does that affect the investment strategy, and does that therefore require you to maybe think about the name of the fund or, or not? Yeah, it's really... A couple of great points in there, Sarah, and and one that really strikes me, and it was kind of near the end of Adam's laundry list, and you mentioned it again in thinking about from a firm perspective what might be just incredibly burdensome. It's it's that documentation piece. I mean, again, especially where you might own, as you described, kind of a large basket of different securities and the decisions that went in, and 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 ultimately, I would potentially see that as one area that could be uh, pretty difficult to comply with at, at different times. And um, certainly something that I'm sure folks in the industry are <laughs> at least keeping a close eye on as the final rules are set to come out. You know, one of the things that, and this might be a good segue, because this is another thing that, again, is really would be affecting folks that are going to be on the business side that are going to be, you know, uh, running on 
the kind of uh, uh, ESG program and then the related items that that are kind of offshoots of that. But, you know, form NPX and the additional proxy voting disclosures that, you know, might need to be that, that need to be provided. You know, what what are uh, and, you know, Sarah, maybe at a high level, can you talk a little bit about form NPX and and some of the additional disclosures or and and maybe actually we'll start by Adam, you've done such a wonderful job of giving us a rundown of these different rules. It's it's almost like you worked at the SEC for, you know, the better part of a couple of decades there. But um, no, what we maybe would love to hear from you. What what were uh, some of the final amendments for form NPX? And and then we can dig into kind of what additional disclosures might be necessary after that. Yeah, that's it, it's great. And this is another one of those situations where we have a modification of an existing rule, right? So we the best way to think about it is probably to contrast with what the industry is already doing. Uh, importantly, here this rule is live. Uh, we have compliance dates, and and we all should be thinking about how we're going to comply with this now, uh, because as, as Sarah may well mention. The record keep the reporting period for this is going to start this year, uh, even though filings are not going to have to happen until next year. So, what does the rule do? It requires funds and managers to categorize the subject matter of each reported proxy voting item according to 14 specified categories. Now, you may be saying 14 categories, that feels like a lot of categories, but importantly, that is down from 17 categories and 90 subcategories that were in the proposing release. So moving in the right direction, those categories include things like board of directors votes, environmental or climate related votes, human rights or human capital, corporate governance. There's governance again, to back to Sarah's point earlier about who doesn't consider governance, extraordinary transactions, uh, compensation, political activities and shareholder rights, and, and there are some others. In discussing these categories, the SEC noted that investors have increased their focus on how funds vote on ESG-oriented matters. So this, this proxy proposal can be thought of as part of the overall set of rule proposals designed to address ES, ESG concerns. Among the specific changes, the rule would require funds to indicate the number of shares voted and the number of shares loaned but not recalled for voting. That's new. It will require funds to post their voting records on their website in a readable format and provide the information upon request. That's new. And managers would specifically be required to disclose how they voted on, say, on pay matters. So just to round out, these final, these final rules have an effective date of July 1, 2024. And the first reports will cover the year starting July 1, 2023, which is not that long away. And so it is a good time for advisors to start thinking about their compliance if they haven't already with this rule. Yeah, no, it sounds like, again, especially because we have the final amendments in, we know when the compliance date um, is going to occur. It, it definitely something that firms will want to keep in mind. Maybe, Sarah, that's a, a, a perfect time to turn to you and think about, you know, from a best practices standpoint, I guess, what additional disclosures are, are necessary? And, and then, you know, from a best practice standpoint, what can the firms be doing right now to make sure that they implement these uh, additional disclosures properly? Sure. I think the one thing that people need to be very cautious of is this new requirement for institutional investors who normally have not filed an NPX, but now having to suddenly, you know, do their stay on pay and in an NPX form. So that might be very new to you know, certain investment advisors. So be, you know, be careful of that. 
I think the whole shares on loan is something that's going to be another real problem in terms of, I mean, we all know what's on loan and what isn't, but what's hard is the focus of why did you not recall them, right? If you're an ESG fund, why did you not recall those shares? Well, I'm sorry. I didn't know until two weeks before that the record date was being struck because that's not publicly available with any long-term view. So I didn't have the chance to. Well, where are you going to post that, right? Apology on the MPX. I also think that the proposal categories, and yes, I agree with Adam that, you know, 14 is better than 90, but they still are so subjective. And I want to give an example. So let's, let's assume that I opposed a director because they did not set in their, you know, a higher mission, high emitter. So I opposed the director because they hadn't set proper GHG targets, right? Now, does that get classified under G or does that get classified under S? or E. I mean, yes, it's a director vote, but it was my vote because of an E issue. So again, really subjective. And then you also have to think about, you know, an outcome of this, and it's already kind of happening, but a real, another outcome of this will be the special interest groups are going to come in and, you know, scrub all the data and then say, okay, you know, this person, you know, regardless on both sides of the aisle, right, are going to start making accusations of you you didn't, you know, support 100% of the climate proposals because you, even though you say you support, you know, um, climate, well, maybe one proposal was written that it was actually very thoughtful. They're asking the company to provide a report, whereas the other one is micromanaging the company and saying you must set very specific targets at X, Y, and Z that no, no one would support. But that isn't going to be obvious when you go through that MPX file. So I think those are some of the key things to think about when you're disclosing, but particularly those shares on loan. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. And I appreciate you providing that example to highlight what I think will ultimately be a, real, a pretty significant challenge for a lot of firms in trying to, who, again, you know, who want to do the right thing in, in accordance with what the rule requires. And they want to disclose, you know, why they voted a certain way and what type of issue it was that, that it, it, you know, led to their vote. But you highlighted a couple of things that would, would be difficult where you might have uh, a couple of different factors. And that's, that's another interesting topic. And again, a little bit broader than maybe what we're looking at here with some of these specific rule proposals. But just ESG in general can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people and not what everybody qualifies as being an E or an S or a G issue will always be the same. And, and so that unique tailoring that individual firms are using can be I mean, again, helpful in some ways because it allows you greater flexibility, but it can be challenging in other ways where you, you the, the definitions you're using don't always directly line up with categories that have been preset based on the way the rules are written. And, um, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> that's There's a lot to unpack, obviously, with this type of rule proposal, I guess. <laughs> and I guess maybe it's a good time to think about ESG in a little bit of a broader sense, right? Because these changes, right? You go back and you look at, right? We've got the enhanced disclosures by investment advisors and investment companies about ESG investment practices. You've got the names rule proposal. You've now got form NPX. These are some pretty significant developments and, and changes that are really going to require firms to 
adjust a lot of both their internal controls, maybe even overall firm operations and investment strategies. And then certainly like, you know, record keeping and documenting and some of these other things that we've talked about that again, for many folks, like, you know, who previously didn't even report say on form NPX are now going to have to provide these reports. And so, you know, what, what does all of this <laughs> active rulemaking in this space kind of tell us about the state of the SEC broadly, and what what can we glean from that in the sense of what you know? It, it kind of relates a little bit to what we talked about at the top, right? But why this is such a focus of the SEC, and what does all this active rulemaking say about it? Um, I'll take a first swing, Patrick. I, and here's what I here's what sort of I have gleaned from from observing this for the last uh, you know 18, 24 months. There seems to be, not just in the ESG space, but is particularly pronounced in the ESG space, a move away from the more traditional principles-based rulemaking that we have seen in the investment advisor regulatory arena toward a more prescriptive approach that includes things like we've talked about today, a significant increase in mandated disclosures about a particular investment strategy. Or Sarah mentioned the uh, extensive documentation requirements uh, that would go around the names rule or specific categorization of votes under form NPX. And, you know, I think there are people on both sides, there are people who have, on one side who are saying investors absolutely want information with this granularity and this information will be decision useful to those investors. And I think the SEC in putting out, at least the majority of the SEC in putting out these rule proposals takes that view. I have also heard others who have suggested that that this level of granularity is not truly what investors and in particular retail investors are seeking in terms of understanding these strategies and questions about whether the cost attendant to complying with these kinds of prescriptive disclosure requirements and prescriptive record keeping requirements is commiserate with the benefit that investors are likely to see from these proposals. That's super helpful. Thank you, Sarah. Anything to add on, on your side as far as with all of the different rulemaking in play, you know, uh, just kind of the the general state and and kind of the focus from the SEC in a, in a broader sense. I'll use the word frightening. I mean, yes, it's helpful because it makes a clearer roadmap uh, in terms of what we need to do and the data needed and you know the expectations that the SEC has. I think it is onerous, but on the other hand, there's just because it is so detailed, you can just get tripped up on you know, not following one step or not doing a step that you said you were going to do because it's in your compliance policy. So, you know, it's, it's a balance that I can appreciate the SEC trying to take care of the investors. But on the other hand, it's putting a lot of work and risk on the investment advisors that are running and managing those funds. Yeah, no, I think, you know, and, and I'm glad that you mentioned risk there uh, at the end, because I, I do think that's, you know, Ultimately, one of the things that, you know, legal practitioners and compliance officers that are in this space and, and, and investment folks, right, too, like if there's one thing that everybody understands, there's, there's risks involved and obviously we're trying to mitigate the risks there and we can help with that. But ultimately, because 
sometimes, again, the way that we're in, uh, internally defining things and tailoring our own firm's operations and investment strategies and trying to marry that up with specifically what the rules require, there's there's an inherent risk there at, that, you know, later down the road, right, we may found to be, there may be some non-compliance or some kind of, you know, interpretation that there's been non-compliance. And that's probably a good segue to, to look at the enforcement side of what's been happening in the space. And, you know, I, I know, you know, look, there's uh, any number of different topics that uh, uh, can catch people's attention. I know, you know, with the record keeping uh, enforcement stuff at the end of, the, of Q3 last year and, 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 and subsequent to that, that's been on people's minds. But I think ESG is another really big one, too, that has uh, where you've seen some cases um, over the past couple of years, and that are uh, uh, certainly going to uh, uh, catch the the eyes of folks that are involved in the space, and, and maybe you've even seen a little bit of uh, focus of additional resources from the SEC on that front. And so maybe I'll turn to you, Adam. What what are you know we seeing from the SEC on the enforcement front in this space? I appreciate the question. So in March of 2021, the SEC, and this is sort of at a high. At the beginning of, of seeing so much of this activity, uh, there was a risk alert that came out of Division of Examinations right around that time, and some of this rulemaking got started right around that time. But on the enforcement side, in March of 2021, the SEC created an enforcement ESG task force, and that task force sort of had two work streams, one relevant to looking at ESG issues at corporate issuers, and another work stream looking at ESG issues for investment advisors and investment companies. Since that time, the SEC has brought a number of enforcement actions with an ESG focus. Uh, the SEC has helpfully collected those actions on a spotlight page on the SEC website, so you can go see uh, the, the matters that they at least have characterized as related to the ESG task force. And full disclosure, at the top of the show, I was a member of this task force before uh, before I left the SEC. But broadly speaking, in the investment advisor area, the SEC, I think, is looking at a couple key things. The big one is the one that I used to say when I was on the staff. If I had one card to hand out, it would say, do what you say and say what you do. Um, and, and so there's a lot of a lot of, I think, focus on whether disclosures regarding the ESG investment strategy match that strategy such that investors are getting what they would expect. And I would say that that's not new. The SEC does that in other areas and has done that for a long time. And the SEC actually has even brought cases in the ESG space all the way back in 2008 against an investment advisor that fits this, that fits this same, kind of, the same kind of template. Beyond those those disclosure points. The other thing where I think you might see cases, and we have started to see some cases, is in the policies and procedures arena. We've talked about prescription, prescriptive policies, prescriptive requirements throughout. I think you can look at some of the recent cases that have come out in the investment advisor space and see that the SEC is going to it may expect there to be policies and procedures around ESG strategy as an investment strategy, which is a little bit different than what we've historically seen with other investment strategies. So big picture, that's what they're looking at. Um, I would also just say that the timeline for SEC enforcement actions and investigations can be long. And so the fact that we've seen you know, a handful of actions at this point uh, may not be comfort that there aren't more on the way. Yeah, no, that that's really helpful context, and th thank you too for adding the fact and and pointing out that you know some of the enforcement in this space goes back 
15 years. Um, right. And I think that's an important point because I do think, look, ESG is scary. (laughs) Even for people that are in it all the time, I think ESG is, you know, Sarah said frightening earlier, right? I mean, there, there's certainly anxiety that can be driven around the topic because it is hard to understand, uh, and, and tough to tackle, tough to wrap your arms around. I, I think, that though for many of the folks that are in this space, you just said something that I think is such a great takeaway. And it relates to even a little bit of what you know Sarah had mentioned earlier, which is, you know, say what you do and do what you say is a great mantra and something that I think is really important and is a long-standing compliance principle, right? Not just in ESG, but in a lot of other uh, uh, areas as well. Um, and certainly, you know, disclosures and, and stuff related to it are going to be things that are very familiar. And so when you have a, a safe harbor like that, where you can say, okay, look, if, if we say what we're doing here and how we're looking at it and the, and how we're going to try to execute on some of these things, and ultimately we, we do execute on them in the way in which we say, maybe there might be disagreements on interpretation and stuff like that. But generally speaking, those examinations and the stuff that we have are going to go a lot better for us. And I think that's a really important point. And I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned it. Sarah, with some of the different enforcement actions that have come out in the space and, and you know, that have been taken by the SEC with regard to some of these ESG claims, you know, how does, how do all of these enforcement actions impact maybe what you're doing, right? More on the investment on the business side a little bit to help make sure you're building the proper kind of internal controls and trying to execute on, on some of those best practices. Right. And and good question, because clearly it is front and center when you see one of your peers to pay a $4 million fine for something that probably was an inadvertent oversight, right? So lesson learn from their mistakes, you know, go back and see what the issue was and what are you doing or what have you been doing and what do your policies say that you're doing. So to me, I think it's really important that the investment team, the ESG team, legal and compliance all work together to say, you know, what are the practices that we're trying to achieve in terms of our investment strategy? What controls do we have in place and what controls are, you know, a compliance control and what are those that are just helping from an investment perspective because don't put something at a compliance policy that is going to help you with making an investment decision but isn't a critical component of it because if you're not doing it and you say you are then you guess what you just violated your policy so you know really work and collaborate with your compliance and legal team from a business perspective to say this is what we want to do and why and then help us put controls in place around that I think it's also important, you know, to go back and take a look at your marketing material. What are you saying in all your RFP? What are you saying in your, um, you know, client report? So I think it's, again, important just to say, even though you have been saying this for the last three years, you know, going forward, what are we doing about this now to make sure that we can compensate for that? I do want to circle back just really quickly on, on one thing on the loan, you know, recalling the, the shares. If you are an ESG fund, you know, there's going to be a question in terms of why did you not recall your shares? If you say that it was a material vote for you, I would suggest that people put a policy in place, careful because you don't want to violate it, but that the mutual fund board and the manager really should have a policy about when do you want to recall shares? Because what's not disclosed there is how much revenue did you 
forego because you recalled the shares. And how do you know, you know, which is better? Because that's a fine line. So I'm kind of circling back on that one, Patrick, but sorry. That to me is, again, one of your internal controls that I think is going to be important to have um, from that perspective. Yeah, no, I'm, I appreciate you adding that additional insight. And again, I think for uh, many of the listeners to this podcast, folks that are in, you know, in this space, I think it's important to keep all of those things in mind as they're going to be uh, kind of applying ESG into their programs. And that's probably a good place for us to to really think about kind of wrapping up our conversation and, and thinking about the application of ESG. And, you know, from industry practices and active ownership and, and I guess, you know, just kind of thinking in, Sarah, maybe I'll, I'll stick with you on this. You know, what, how are, in the application of ESG and how are some of these issues getting visibility out there? And then in addition to kind of that visibility question, I guess I'll ask, you know, thinking about disclosures and how those get drafted, you know, like, what are, again, best practices that you would recommend for folks that are looking at drafting their own disclosures? But let's, sorry, let, let's start with the visibility question and then we'll get to the disclosures. Sure. So one thing that you know, my, my colleagues will know is that we are getting so many RFPs and due diligence questionnaires and requests uh, for information from prospects and clients about ESG when they're there's clearly interest, you know, as Adam pointed out, in terms of the trillion dollars with the ESG tag on it. So I think one of the things that is, is interesting is for, for as many um, data providers out there, you know, there's that many different methodologies that are used, and that makes it a challenge. And they can only get what they are able to, you know, score is based on public information, right, in terms of what's, what's disclosed. So I think it's important that, you know, managers really understand what is the, the data that they're using and then how does that affect their ESG program? Should you be creating your own score or relying on a third party or multiple parties? So you know, that type of focus, I think, is something that even the compliance needs to think about in terms of what is the data that you're using. Because we're, you know, going back to that record keeping, if that's something you have to document that made that and that helped you make that investment decision, then, you know, think about that one. And, and then there, you're also getting rated by you know, issuers are getting rated by, you know, these multiple vendors that, again, if we're relying on that information, but it's stale, right? It, they only look at you once a year. Then how can I, as an investment manager, say that that is, you know, accurate data that I'm relying on, especially if it's going to be that 80% bucket, right? So in terms of disclosure, I would say absolutely define what does ESG mean to you, right, as an investment manager, particularly with these proposed rules, knowing that you're going to get brought into an integrated fund or an impact fund or ESG-related fund, so make sure you can define that, right, because it looks like the rule is going to make us do that anyway. Your disclosure, of course, needs to be authentic, but it's also going to be based on the product or the vehicle that's going to be um, offered, and it also depends on the regulator uh, and the audience. I mean, you can have one fund that is an Article 8 under SFDR where the regulator is requiring a whole lot of disclosure in terms of, you know, an E measurement, whereas, you know, the SEC is almost encouraging not to do that, right? So think of your audience. And then, again, going back to that enforcement, make sure that your disclosure is one that you can substantiate because it will be reviewed by the SEC. Yeah. 
No, that's so, so important. And I'm, I'm glad that, again, you, you mentioned that. We, we know that they are focused on the space. We know that we need to make sure, you know, to do, to put in the time and do the work and try the best, the very best that the firm can to not only define what ESG means for them, right? But then to draft, as you articulated, meaningful disclosures, right? And then ultimately, you know, get, getting to, I guess, maybe some of the policies and procedures signed, you know, maybe Adam, I'll, I'll look at you to kind of close us up when we're thinking about applying ESG you know, for some of your clients in the space that, that are plugged in and that are having to develop these internal controls um, in place. And a lot of them that, you know, what, what Sarah just touched on, are there certain things that you're seeing, certain ways that people are approaching the policies and procedures part that, that you think, you know, wow, that's a really smart take on how you can approach that and how those policy and procedures are going to be written and, and tested? I think this is really challenging because it goes to Sarah's point about making sure you draft a policy that you can live with uh, and, and can actually implement. And so I would say the macro point that we're seeing is the drafting of policies and procedures that are not overly prescriptive, but that do identify at a more basic level uh, the steps that the advisor is going to be taking to make sure that the investment strategy matches uh, matches with, or the investment process matches with the disclosure. It's a situation where I think there's risk. Uh, going back, we keep using the word prescriptive, but there's real risk around drafting a policy for yourself that that, that is so limiting uh, that the SEC is going to be able to come in and, and pick it apart. And so, mostly what we have seen is uh, the the consideration of policies that are at that slightly less prescriptive level so that they are achievable, but still consistent with the investment strategy. Yeah. I appreciate you taking a stab at what was, you're right, a very challenging uh, question. And, and uh, again, another one that's kind of tough to tackle in this space, I guess, you know, one, I, I want to thank you both so, so much for taking the time to share your thoughts. I'm not going to get you out. I'm not going to let you get out of here without asking you a, a more fun question, but to close, close up the shop real quick on the ESG front, I guess the last thing that I would just add is, you know, interestingly enough, and we talked a little bit about this in a couple other uh, parts of the, of the, of the show. But, you know, all of this rulemaking and this enforcement that's going on in the space that obviously is, you know, materially impacting a lot of the participants that are active in this space is continuing to play out against the backdrop of what can be at times uh, some pretty partisan positions that are being taken on the matter. And we've seen a couple examples where some of that might even come into play, where you think about like proxy voting and other stuff like that down the line. And what that looks like. And so, um, you know, uh, he, here's hoping that as as both the the, the regulators and uh, those that are in the industry and for a lot of listeners of this podcast, the legal practitioners and compliance professionals that are charged with um, um, looking at this area and dedicating themselves to these areas that they're able to continue to you know provide meaningful rules and guidance and the industry can can themselves develop meaningful operations and policies and procedures in a way that hopefully avoids a lot of those partisan positions. Um, though, of course, there's still a lot of activity here and we will be keeping a very close eye on it all. So again, Adam, Sarah, thank you. Thank you 
so much for your thoughts uh, today on the ESG uh, side of the house. One final question for you, a little bit fun, right? We're getting nearer, closer to the end of the winter uh, uh, months here, you know, and and actually, well, some of us throughout the country recently, given the crazy uh, temperature swings we've had, may have experienced a little bit of warmer spring and summer weather of late. But I guess maybe what's what's one activity that you're really looking forward to here as we uh, approach the uh, the warmer months in, in the spring season? Well, I'll start. And so I, I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is a beautiful time of year right now. And it will continue to be that way through, I don't know, the end of May. Well, but it's also my proxy season. So I am indoors almost the entire day, all weekend, all day, unable to enjoy it, but can look out the window and say, oh, isn't that nice? Yeah. And, and for me, I'm in Washington, D.C., where uh, my, my quip about the winter weather is that it's always 43 and rainy. And so I'm looking, I'm excited about that lifting. I, I'm also excited about uh, a little traveling actually out uh, to Sarah's neck of the woods for spring break uh, coming up a little bit, a little bit later this, this spring. So I'm looking forward to a trip to some good sunshine in, in Arizona. That's awesome. <laughs> well, uh, thank you uh, both again so, so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure you know, to have you on and to talk about such an important topic. My best to you as we uh, end the winter months and approach the, uh, the spring season here and would, would love to have you back on the show here at some point down the road. That would be great. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, thank you so much. The final part of today's show features another segment of What's On My Mind. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, this segment represents a tip of the cap to former 60 Minutes reporter Andy Rooney, and will often include a brief editorial or nuanced take on a contemporary issue and highlight how it relates to the investment management industry and our securities compliance brothers and sisters. I was recently reminded of a story, back from 2007, of a violinist playing for 45 minutes in the DC Metro subway. A handful of people stopped, a couple clapped, and supposedly the violinist raised about 30 bucks in tips. No one knew this at the time, but the violinist was the world famous Joshua Bell, one of the best musician, one of the best musicians in the world. In that subway, Joshua played one of the most intricate pieces ever written, with a violin worth approximately three and a half million dollars. Just two days before that, Mr. Bell had sold out the Library of Congress and the seats averaged 100 bucks. The experiment proved that the extraordinary in an ordinary environment may not shine and is so often overlooked and undervalued. There are brilliantly talented people everywhere who aren't receiving the recognition and reward that they deserve. Frequently in the field of securities compliance, our efforts can go unnoticed. Often seen as a cost center or the no police, it can be easy for compliance officers to feel undervalued and for extraordinary efforts to go unrecognized. So to anyone in this space who's feeling a bit overwhelmed and under-resourced right now, but who's trying to keep it together with the barrage of rulemaking that's out there, I see you. And if on the off chance that you're not receiving the kind of recognition that you deserve, then let me just say, keep up the great work. Your efforts are most certainly appreciated, and your time in the sun will come, if not perhaps soon enough. 
And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guests, Sarah Donaldson and Adam Aderton, for coming on the show today to discuss all of the intricacies associated with ESG, the recent rulemaking, and how that tough-to-tackle subject matter could impact your firm's compliance program. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance in Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Or go to ComplianceInContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 